On behalf of this week's sponsor, I wanted to tell you about the amazing work that Deliveroo and the Trussell Trust have been doing together to support people facing hardships across the UK. To date, Deliveroo and its customers have helped provide over 2 million meals to people through the app and their Roundup and Donate feature, as well as helping to fund vital wraparound services provided by food banks. Deliveroo have also pledged to increase this number to 4 million meals globally. Any Deliveroo customer anywhere in the UK can add their support, and it's so easy to do too. You simply choose to round up your order to the nearest pound when you place it on the app on the checkout page. If every customer who used Deliveroo, and there are millions every month, rounded up just 10p on one order, the impact would be enormous. Times are hard right now and a lot of people are struggling to afford the essentials, leading to food banks needing to support more people than ever before. So this provision of meals really is crucial to so many people. The money also goes to supporting the food banks with financial support in the form of advice on debts and benefits, as well as connections, which will hopefully end the need for food banks and lift people out of poverty long term. A small donation in this very simple way really can make a huge difference. If you can, consider rounding up your next order on Deliveroo. You can give as little or as much as you like. Find out more at DeliveroofullLife.com. I'll pop the link in the show notes. Thank you very much to Deliveroo. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. A lovely episode for you today with the brilliant Tom Bateman, who I'm sure lots of you will already know, but his story is really inspiring. His road to success hasn't been completely smooth and he's very open and honest about it, which is actually quite rare, but I think so important. It's so easy to look at where someone is now and just not really see the big picture of how they got there and the ups and the downs and everything that goes on behind the scenes. Tom is one of those people who I can honestly say truly deserves all of his success. There are people out there doing very well who, you know what, just actually aren't very nice behind the scenes. And I actually find that thoroughly depressing. So it means when good things happen to nice people, it makes me very happy. And Tom is definitely one of those people. Thank you so much to everyone who signed up to the new newsletter, Dinner Tonight. There are now over 7,500 of you in just a few weeks, which is amazing and so exciting. Thank you so much. The newsletter is a new venture for me. It's one delicious, easy weeknight recipe sent to you every Sunday. If you choose to be a paying subscriber, you get it every week. And if not, it's every fortnight. I get a lot of messages from people who listen to the podcast and often they very kindly ask if there's a way to support what I'm doing. And as of yet, there has never been. So the newsletter is about the recipes, of course, but it's also a way to show support for the podcast, etc. Being reliant on brands and algorithms, it's honestly quite draining. So the idea of people paying less than a pound a week 
for the newsletter. I mean, that would just honestly be a dream come true as I love bringing the podcast to you every week and genuinely your contribution to the newsletter really does make a huge difference. So thank you very much. Anyway, on to today's episode with the brilliant Tom. I do hope you enjoy. So my guest today is Tom Bateman. Tom started his career as a chef at the age of 17 after training at Buxton College and gaining a knowledge of the classical techniques. He quickly rose through the ranks, becoming head chef at the tender age of 18. In 2009, Tom decided to leave the culinary world behind him in order to protect his mental health and get a change in scene and a chance to travel the world to learn more about the world, but also himself. Ten years later, Tom started a food blog known as B-Box Food, which reignited a passion for cooking. And through this, he began working with big brands. And before long, he'd amassed a large and loyal following online. That following now sits at close to 3.5 million followers. Heading back to his roots, Tom decided to open the Flintlock, his critically acclaimed restaurant. It's a family affair, and it's from here he creates all his recipes and videos. He's appeared on the Great British Menu, where he was invited to compete to represent Staffordshire. With all this success, and yet it seems like Tom's only just getting started. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, it's been said of you that Tom's cheerful demeanour and unpretentious approach to his craft are a tonic to an industry which has often appeared bombastic and overblown. Do you think that has been the secret to your success? I mean, it's always nice to read a quote from your own mother. Oh. Um, but, <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I mean, whoever did say that or, or where that came from, that's incredibly kind. I mean, that, I guess that's that's kind of the thing. I don't really set out to be anything specific, just the way I am, I guess. Um, and if that's how it lands, then I must be doing something right somewhere. And what do you think about, particularly the fine dining world, what is it that is so often represented as bombastic and overblown? Why do you think it tends to attract that kind of person? I mean, what I would say initially is those those sort of preconceptions are slowly but surely starting to disappear, I think. And there's a lot more uh, accessible fine dining, I guess, is, is a way of, of, of putting that. Um I don't know, maybe it just comes from a sort of a price point thing that was always a special occasion or you could only go to somewhere that was, you know, inverted commas, fine dining if you were willing to spend loads and loads of money. Um, I think that, again, is something that's changed. It becomes more and more affordable um, despite, you know, everyone's got the, the financial burdens at the moment. But um, I just think it's, it's an opening world mm. and those sort of preconceptions of snooty fine dining I think are slowly but surely making their way out of the world um I mean there'll always be a place for for like really high-end sort of luxurious vibe but I think there's there's a lot more accessible stuff right Definitely. It's just interesting to see the types of personality that are drawn to certain areas of food. And I I think it's like the same conversation that often happens about how women are often like the home cooks or seem to be. And then it's the men who are the fine dining experts. And it's it's Mm. something, as you say, like it's slowly changing. And it's just interesting to think about, I think. Yeah, for sure. That all those sort of dynamics are changing, I guess. You know, if there was a figure of a fine dining chef, you know, it's it's probably a guy in his in his 
40s or 50s with a big tall white hat and <laughs> that's just not the world we live in right it's just Tom I'm very disappointed to see today <laughs> you haven't come in your big tall white hat yeah no I did you know I had a random fact about this the other day that supposedly a hundred folds in a chef's hat yeah. that represent a hundred methods or recipes of, of how to cook an egg wow no yeah. I didn't know that that's well, amazing there you go. I think from looking at everything you put out online at the center of it all is a message that good food should be accessible and most importantly delicious and nostalgia plays a huge part in your cooking so let's mm-hmm. talk about the first desert island dish and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood <laughs> Okay, so for me, the one thing that stands out for me is, can you remember the, the cod and butter sauce in the little packs? Oh, yes. Think you, you sort of poached them within its packet, or, or I don't really know. Um, it was just delivered to me in a rectangular, fishy, buttery piece of joy. Um, so, I like, yeah, I really love that with, with probably some form of potato and some peas and... Um, Yeah, it's something that I actually recreated recently for um, a demonstration, which was nice. But yeah, that that for me is the one thing that I would always go back as a memory. Was food a big part of your family life when you were growing up? Yeah, for sure. Mum, who actually works at the restaurant, um, not in the kitchen, um, but she's a wonderful cook and she still is. And yeah, so we it was always part of what we did. It categorically <laughs> a pillar of my um, life from an early age to where we are now. And food is so powerful. And, and I think the food of our childhood can really play an important part in future life. Nostalgia, as I've said, is a common theme in your cooking. But talk to me a little bit about that. Why is it so important to you? I think it's powerful. I think memory is so powerful, especially with things that transport you immediately. I think with food, you get that sort of, I guess because it's sensory, it just sort of can immediately transport you to a place of of joy, (laughs) hopefully. Um, So, yeah, I think that's why it's so important to me. And I just I just feel like I draw my strongest um, inspiration from from memory, really. Mm. You went to Buxton College to train as a chef. Presumably, I'm thinking this was around the age of 15. Was cooking all you ever wanted to do? Um, I was a little bit older than that, actually. Um, Feels like a long time ago. Um, I'd started to work at the restaurant I was at and I did it sort of... um, part-time or within the working framework of what I was doing Um, so I was 17 and I went there for two years I think Um, which was great to be fair because it gave me a sort of fundamental grounding of of what it is to be in a kitchen in that Mm. respect of classical technique and all that kind of stuff so um, yeah it was really good. When you were growing up was that just always a really obvious career path for you that you would go into the world of food or did you think about doing anything else? I think it was what I always felt I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Whether it was what I wanted to do long term was was up for debate because you know when you're a teenager you think that yeah you know, I suppose twenty years ago as well that you couldn't go out every single night especially where I lived so your weekends were gone and it was the commitment to doing that which put me off but then it, it, I was just overcome with this is what you should be doing um, mm-hmm. so I set sail with it and. 
managed six years before I crumbled and decided it wasn't for me. But when you say you felt like it was what you should be doing, where was that coming from? I think it's just it's just within me. It's just what I love to do. Mm. And, like, I get, I get questions like, oh, do you, do you just go home and, and not eat or do you get fed up with cooking or whatever? And it's just not, never the case. Like, days off, I spend, well, I spend filming nowadays, but I'll always find myself in a position where I want to make food and feed people. A holiday. If I can cook, I'll cook. I don't want to just sit around and do nothing. That's that's just not me. So I think it's just there all the time, and that's what I want to do. I get the most enjoyment out of doing it. So. Yeah, isn't that amazing that you found something that you love that much? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it has its flip sides, but yes, yeah, it is. It's true, and I get to do it every day now. You got your first cooking job at the Mexican restaurant Castros at the age of seventeen, an experience that you describe as being like a baptism of fajita-led fire. <laughs> was working in the restaurant or any restaurant what you expected it to be like? I think from what you see on TV and stuff, that it was what I expected. The the physical demands I underestimated for sure because like, I think this is something that is talked about but maybe not enough that the demands on someone working in a kitchen are physical mental and emotional mm. um i think that this is something as an industry we are improving for sure like we're reducing the number of hours that people work and stuff but 20 years ago there's just an expectation to never stop i never had a day off for two years like it's crazy when you think of it um mm. you know we had an opportunity to go on holiday once one week in a year which you, you say that out loud now and you just like no well, why would you do that and it's just just how it was I guess because yeah. um, now they're saying I think so like back in the day it was everyone was doing doubles like back to back all the time mm. and now I think that isn't even really allowed anymore I don't think mm. and quite rightly even the, the, the restaurant we're looking to condense the days we're open because we don't want the standard to suffer but we also want the staff to be ultimately fit and healthy and well so yeah. that's the best way for us to to do it is to condense it rather than sort of expect people to work day after day and so you were really thrown into the head chef role at the age of 18 which is quite unusual <laughs> i think presumably you were managing a line of chefs who were older than you and possibly more experienced i'm imagining like being a head chef is so different to just being a chef what was that like um, you learn quickly, for sure. There was three of us, and I was the youngest by quite quite a way. Um, it's you just learn on the job, and I suppose uh, we still learn on the job every day. Every if you're not learning, then you're standing still, etc. But um, it was a very interesting period because I'd never done it before, obviously, and to be in that scenario in in a busy environment, and. Um, Learning as I went, trying to scratch around and work out what to do next. It was tough, but then if I hadn't done it, I probably wouldn't be sat here now. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Okay, let's talk about the second Desert Island dish, and that's the first dish that you learnt to cook. So this is random, really random. <laughs> um, but it was a giant bourbon biscuit, or bourbon, bourbon biscuit, right? I think that's right. Um it was in a, uh, a Gary Rhodes book, Great British Classics type book, 
and it, there was a TV series that w went with it, and I think he made it on the TV series. I'm not sure, but he'd got three like really large versions of of like biscuits that we would recognise, and that was one of them. I thought I'm gonna make that. Um, so yeah, that was the first thing I ever really learned to make. What? How old do you think you were? Eleven or twelve, I think, something like that. I think it's so often the way, and it obviously makes a lot of sense that as a child, like pastry is the gateway to cooking, isn't it? Like it's always something delicious and cakey or biscuity that draws mm -hmm. you in. And then that's where you can really get the cooking bug, I think. Yeah, a gateway to an addiction for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like you say, it's just like you associate that the sort of sweet stuff with fun as well, I guess. So mm. if, you were, if you're a young person, that might be your gateway. Uh, but think carefully, kids. <laughs> you might end up with your very own restaurant if you're not <laughs> Yeah, careful. you never know. So you did six years in the restaurant before things came to a head and you ultimately decided to walk away from cooking. You've talked openly about that time and the struggles that you had with your mental health, which I think is so important that these conversations are happening more and more. And particularly men, mm -hmm. I think, because I just there isn't very much dialogue around that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened that brought you to make that decision? Yeah, it was obviously a very tough period and, and something that you quite rightly point out needs to be more open and conversation for sure. It's the best and only way through it. So I, I did, suppressed it for a while and it just ended up as a mess. It's just too overwhelming for a young person in that position. And I just couldn't get away from it. I wasn't getting paid very much, which, you know, was the industry then. Another thing that's on the on the rise, which is good to, to know. But the wars were closing in on me because I had no free time. I had no money. I was disillusioned with what we were doing because we weren't making food that I want to make. At 23 at that point, or 22 or whatever it was, I was ready to be a real chef rather than, you know, use spice mix from from the shop and pre-bought fudge cakes. It just wasn't real to me. It was just mm. all the bad things about hospitality with none of the good. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and all that cycles up into a position where I just had no option. And it's like, I need, I've got to leave. I've got to leave the industry. There's nowhere else to go. So it's time for a change. And that's why and where we got to. And, yeah, it was... Really, really tough. Fortunately for me, I had a way out in terms of another job to, to move to within the family business, um, which was just like relief. Yeah, I went to do a, an, an admin job, sales admin job, and it felt like a completely different world because, you know, I got to work at half past eight, left at half past five yeah. and could do what I wanted <laughs> and was getting paid a reasonable amount of money. Yeah. It's a totally so, yeah. different ball game. Mm-hmm. Something that occurred to me when I was reading about your story is that I think it's important to remember that whatever you're doing, whether it's cooking or, you know, you might love what you do, but it isn't who you are. It's part of it, of course, but it's not the entire story. And I wondered mm -hmm. when you made that change, did you feel any sort of sense of identity crisis in a way, stepping away from everything that you knew? For, for sure, yeah, because we were... And at that point, the, the restaurant I worked at, Castro's, was, was its own little world. You know, it was me, my older brother, a couple more staff. We were our own community because that's we socialised together because you couldn't do anything else um, on those days off or 
you know, I used to go to the, uh, the cinema on my own, which I'd, I'd do now for out of choice. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, different. It was out of necessity then because I had nothing else to do. But mm. um, So, yeah, to then go into a world that was normal, more normal, if you like, was very, very different. And even things like I'd... Because I worked in the kitchen from 17, obviously. I, I was under a lot of pressure. I had no patience. So I started to go fishing because I needed to teach myself patience and in my view. And just to be able to do something like that, something more normal that other normal people could do and I couldn't mm. was very liberating for sure. Yeah. And you know, the idea of being able to just do nothing on a weekend, like it just seems so, so different mm. and a completely different environment to what I was used to and had been used to from essentially a teenager, like, you know, leaving school to a young adult. And, yeah, the whole world changed in that moment. Yeah. Like you describe, it's almost being on a hamster wheel that you just can't get off and there just isn't time to even think about anything beyond the immediate, you know, what's happening. And and like you say, having the space to to just do something for yourself like fishing that's Mm -hmm. it's so important let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish and that's the best dish you've ever eaten now this this is a tough one because there was one that stood out for years and years and i just didn't think it it'd be bettered which was these are both desserts randomly um i'm not you know i love a dessert but i'm i would probably err on the side of savory given the choice um first one which stood out for years on end was a dish I ate at Tommy Banks restaurant at the Black Swan. Mm. It was a Douglas fir and caramelised white chocolate dessert and it was mind-blowingly good. To me at that point, I think it was six years ago and I was like not back into food at that point. So we went there because I'd seen him on a Great British Menu and it was where we were living nearby. And I was like, I've got to go and eat there. So we did, and it blew my mind. And that particularly, I was just like, I've never had anything like this before. You know, like foraged ingredient turned into a dessert like that. It, it just blew my mind. And um, it was the best dish I'd ever had until recently. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Until it was certainly joined on the top spot by um, my now good friend Tom Shepard's banana man dish from Great Rich Menu. Ooh. It, it, it was just, at that point, I mean, I was incredibly frustrated because I was in competition <laughs> against said dish, but it was so brilliantly executed and well thought out, as well as being delicious to the point of I can't even understand how you've done this. What, so what was um, it? So a banana creme pat mousse which had got like popping candy in and he'd set that in the shape of a banana and dipped it into chocolate cocoa butter to, <gasps> to to form the shape of the banana so it looked like a banana. Then on the side there was a banana cake which he'd soaked in banana rum and then a banana ice cream with a banana caramel. I mean, and if you don't like banana, probably not for you. He <laughs> served it on a little glass bowl with banana leaves inside and it oh had like a little dry ice with a banana aroma going round. And then he went backstage and dressed as Banana Man. <laughs> <laughs> so there was even an element of comedy <laughs> to it. Ah, oh, this guy's too good for me. No, not too good for you, but that's the last thing you want to come up against when you're in a competition, isn't it? Just... Yeah, I was doing all right until that point. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. 
<laughs> yeah, unless you've got some kind of fancy dress costume just in the boot of your car, there's not much mm. you can do at that point. Yeah, it did, it did me on that. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just so it's just incredible. Those two, if you you know you put me on the spot, they're, mm. they're the two that really and yeah, both by people called Tom as well. Yeah, there's a theme. I think that's interesting that you say you're not a sweet person, and yet those are two sweet options. We haven't had many puddings chosen for this answer i think which is interesting maybe it's the thing is with with desserts they, they can be so so unique mm. whereas like savory food can not be samey that completely is the wrong way of describing it but it, they go down a track of mm. like you know beef people are familiar with beef or if, unless you get something that's truly unique, and it, it, that might be why. I think that's probably why they stand out because I've eaten such incredible food all mm. over the all over the world, really. Um, but those are the things that stand out because I've never eaten anything like those things. Ever. Yeah, I think also it might be with the savory dishes when people talk about the best dish, it's it's often the occasion or who they were with or it's a specific memory. But I think you're right mm -hmm. that in terms of puddings, because they can be so unique and like special just in themselves, it's less attached to a memory and it's more just this amazing experience of this pudding. For sure, yeah. I mean, I was with my wife, Sally, and the first, uh, the first one. <laughs> so that was definitely... <laughs> contributing factor. Sally if you're listening Just... that was definitely why it was one of my best yeah it was yeah. absolutely because of you Sally <laughs> nothing to do with the dessert <laughs> so you would spend the next 10 to 11 years working in the family agricultural engineering business which mm -hmm. you say gave you the freedom to travel and explore different countries and also find out more about yourself do you think that traveling is a really important part of self-discovery I do, and I, d I don't necessarily mean, um, you know, to go on a plane. <laughs> particularly, mm. I think you. Can, I learned so much from driving around uh, the UK and seeing different approaches. And I think because the the business that we um, I worked in sold to farmers, so you see a very very much on the line every day their livelihood and what it means to them and their, the isolation and all that. And so the characters you meet and the opinions that you hear and just the idea of, of seeing that up front and obviously you're dealing with livestock as well, so you, you, there's the, that impact. And I think seeing those places from the far reaches of Scotland right down into Cornwall, I think was really eye-opening and then... To go further afield was it almost felt like a bonus to me. And also in terms of the food and and your passion for that, did you find that your culinary world expanded through travelling? Yeah, I mean for sure, the the food interest never went away. So wherever I was going, if I was going to Scotland, chances are I was looking out some, you know, haggis <laughs> for, as a as a basic <laughs> example. But like I'd I'd just find the best places I could go and eat. Probably. Um, Probably frowned upon by the person signing off my um, Your expenses. expenses. <laughs> like, oh, Just a Michelin starred nice, here. Yeah, nice hotel and restaurant again. Yeah. Well, you yeah, were lucky it was a family that. business, Tom. Yeah, yeah. I, I still hear about it now. So, um, but, yeah. But then, like, that's that was my opportunity, even if I was paying it for it myself. Um, mm. 
you know, why why would you not if you were in my position, I guess? He wanted to learn more about the food and the reasons why people made what they made, which is just as important, um, then take the opportunity while you're there. Definitely. And you were to be reunited with your love of cooking formally in 2019 when you started taking pictures of the food that you were making at home and it started garnering recognition across the internet. Your food caught so much attention that you were awarded the 2022 Social Media Influencer of the Year. Were you surprised at your online success? Oh, wow, you've got the mug to prove it. It's gorgeous. Is that what you got? You got a mug as a trophy? Yeah, that, that was my trophy. Golden <laughs> Staff Canteen mug, um, which I treasure, obviously. Well, yeah, um, obviously. Yeah, it's a little bit bonkers, really. I, I remember the specific conversation, and we were talking about somebody else's life and career. We were actually skiing and... Um, Austria and Salbach, but we were chatting to um, a good friend of mine, Jason, and his wife, uh, Tamsin, about his his sort of future ambitions and, and what he wanted to do with his career and stuff. But then I suddenly thought, well, what am I doing with myself? You know, is this is this really what I want to do? And I, and I loved my job and, and still love the business. But deep down, I knew it wasn't sort of fully scratching the itch of what I wanted to do. So that's that's when I thought, right, well, I'll set something up as a little side project um, with no intention of it actually going anywhere, really, just for my own enjoyment. And at that point, we were living in North Yorkshire, but I was commuting down to the family business, which is in, in Chedleton, right next to the restaurant. And I was staying with my mum in the week because I'd sold my house to move up to Yorkshire. So I needed somewhere to stay in the week. Mum still lived in Stoke, so I stayed there. And so I'd got three, four nights a week potentially to fill time with. So I was like, right, well, this is what I'll do. And I started making making various things. i just taken photos, taught myself food photography, and it's like, well, I might as well make it look good. So it then was a good dish that looked good and was posted in a form where people could see it and it got some some big attention which was I was like, oh well this is good <laughs> so you see success you repeat it right that's kind of the thing so I just built on that and after I think after 14 months I'd got 10,000 Instagram followers which was mental mm. I was just like, how was it we even got a balloon for it <laughs> what 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 happened here um and then, yeah, well, it's it's got significantly bigger I mean, since then. Yeah, like a 10,000 is worthy of a balloon, but what on earth did you do for 3.5 million? A hot air balloon? Uh, yeah. <laughs> We've not really had any kind of celebration. I did say to the, the kitchen team here, if I got a million TikTok followers, we, we'd go out and, and we've not been yet. Oh, and Tom! Two and a half million. <laughs> so we need, to, we need to go and do something for that for sure. Yeah. We, we talk a good game. It's now time to implement mm. the, the day out. Obviously, it's all very exciting. But is it one of those things where actually that first 10,000, it's exciting and then you're obviously always wanting it to grow, but you can never quite capture that feeling of that first wave? It was the biggest celebration I've had internally about mm. it, for sure, because it felt like something. It felt like I'd achieved what I'd set out to do, which was to gain recognition for what I was doing, yeah. I guess. Um, so, yeah, that was the big... The, the million on TikTok was... The first million was um, was also 
inwardly quite a celebration. Sorry, um, Tom, but the phrase the first million is really, that's quite cool. Yeah. Quite cool. <laughs> it's, it's mental. Like, I can't really, it's so frantic and it starts to gain more and more traction. You just like, I'm not really sure why this is happening, um, but keep doing what you're doing type of thing. It seems to, people seem to like it and I like doing it because it's a complete change of pace from what I do normally. So, mm. yeah, it's, it is enjoyable. It's like having another full-time job. But yeah. Because <laughs> yes. I do everything myself. That's incredible. We're going to pause there and talk about the most important question of the day. Tom, what is your favourite sandwich? I think... It would have to be a steak sandwich. But now there's criteria there. It's got to be good steak, obviously. I mean, that seems to go without saying. But I like, I like Taleggio cheese on there. That's what Ooh. I'm going to say. Yeah. I also like to um, toast the bread, which has to be ciabatta, I'd say. Mm. Yeah, I reckon. A good one, obviously. Um, in the, the steak pan juices, you've got to threaten it with a bit of greenery as well because mm. life's all about balance. Yeah, Health. A little bit of rocket, yeah. <laughs> a bit of rocket, potentially a watercress. And maybe some caramelised onions and uh, and you're not far off um, truffle mayonnaise if oh. you're feeling especially fancy. Tom. But it's not truffle oil because that is horrible stuff, but you can get this truffle mustard that does the job. It's, mm. yeah. Well, that's a good tip. It's one of them things as well, like it's such an easy thing to put together, not potentially that sandwich I've just described, but like if you get home... And you've got the the equipment. It can be done in seconds, and you can. I, I really like a sandwich that you take that little bit of extra time over, <laughs> turn it from something that was, you know, functional into a into a masterpiece. Yeah. I think that's that's what a real sandwich is all about. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. It's taking the ordinary to the sublime, and that's what mm-hmm. we should be aiming for with our sandwiches. So at the time you started doing your videos, I feel like there weren't many actual professional chefs showing how to make simple dishes. The traction was enormous, as we've said, right from the beginning. And with this huge audience, there comes a lot of power. Did you feel that that changed how other people in the industry began to think of you? Definitely, because when I first set about it, I wasn't a real chef in theory. I was doing it at home. And that is an important point that a lot of people you see online are not actual chefs or they, or they don't work in a kitchen currently because mm. most people who do wouldn't have time to do it. So there are two different things and like that's totally fine. doesn't mean that they can't show you amazing food. That's, that does, you don't need to work in a kitchen currently to do that. But like where you'll feel the benefit is how you can use it more practically, I guess. Um, so there, that's that's my excuse anyway. That's my my thing. Did you feel like other chefs they hadn't heard of you before, or I don't know? You've then developed this like level of kudos, and did you feel that that kind of changed things? Yeah, you've got to sort of prove yourself. Like that's kind of that's true of any industry, and especially one like this. Um, and I think there was things along the way that really sort of said, actually, you know, I can do what you do. <laughs> um, you just don't know that yet. And mm. obviously GBM was a big one because to, to, to cook in such an elite competition and, and do reasonably well was was a big marker in the sand for me. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, you see, don't just make videos. 
Yeah. So that was obviously GBM as Great British Menu. Tell us, mm-hmm. like, how did that come about? So it was, I was in a, a tiny, tiny hotel room in London, which they tend to be, but this one was especially small. <laughs> and I'd, I'd been, I can't remember where I'd been to, an event, I think. And, um, and I was hungover and it was hot. And I just got an email through saying, would you be interested in being on Great British Menu? Um, you've been recommended by someone. And I was just like, what? what? What's going on? Um, yes, I would absolutely like that opportunity. So then you go through the interview process and I just, all the way along, I just thought, well, I can't, no, they don't want me, surely. They must have plenty of other options for this region. And, and yeah, sure as anything, about a week later, I got the call to say you're on it. And I was just, I was stood outside filming a video. I was like, right, stop this. <laughs> go, and, go and do your real job. So, so yeah, and then it all sort of snowballed from there and it's a very lengthy and serious process, as it should be, and, yeah. How long are we talking? So we, I found out I was going to be on in the first few days of August and then we didn't film until November. Mm. but you have to submit your menus at the same time as everybody else so it's a level playing field and fair. Oh, okay. So I had a couple of weeks to do that and then you can make sort of little changes along the way but nothing wholesale because, you know, you've committed to that and then you've got to source all your own props and, and practice, which I didn't really get the opportunity to do. So we had some difficulties with staff, um, all the big build-up and then you, you turn up and it's fully legit, as you see it on the screen, is how it is. No one knows who anybody else is. It's all a complete surprise. You don't know who your veteran is. And then, yeah, the, the whole whirlwind of the show begins and you've just got to cling on for dear life and make sure you get through to the other end of it, which I did, fortunately. And how did it feel, like, the element of being on TV? Did that come naturally Did you, to you? Did you feel pure excitement or were you it must have been it must have been hugely nerve-wracking and also you were representing you know your restaurant and and was there an element of feeling like you had something to lose or something to prove all of that (laughs) fortunately I don't suffer with nerves only the only time I get nervous is when I watch football randomly oh really um, yeah yeah it's so I've got that under control but the weight of expectation was huge because I was like, you've got yourself in this position. If you mess this up now, <laughs> everything that you've built up in terms of gaining respect from other, from your peers or the chefs, uh, other people in the industry, you know, putting the proof behind the fact that you can really do it. If you get kicked out straight away, what does that say about you and the restaurant? Because people know that you are in the restaurant all God, the time. so stressful. Yeah. And then shove eight cameras in your face and doing very long days um, under strain. Um, and Paul Ainsworth staring at you <laughs> for hours on end. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite pressured. Um, but then on the flip side of that, it really engaged my brain of like, right, nothing nothing gets through that you're not happy with. Um, and there's obviously a time pressure and there was things I wasn't, I was disappointed with, but if I, I left knowing that they were my fault. And so, and I'd give everything I could 
to make it as good as I could. Um, so yeah, I left nothing behind, and and to to come up short against Tom Shepard, who was a banquet champion, um, with his main course and arguably should have been with his desserts, best dish I've ever eaten, um, was was gratifying. You know? Yeah, that's kind of the best case scenario, isn't it? You want to yeah. if you go out, you want to go out to the person who then ultimately wins. Yeah, because you were knocked out by a champion. That's yeah. that's that's totally acceptable totally from someone who's only been cooking at this level for at that point two years so yeah. i was willing to take that let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish what's the dish you eat the most often probably given you know chef life and restaurant owner life to put on top of that um time is not my friend so <laughs> i get in and and i have a, a small child to deal with and everything else so when I get in late I need something that I can turn around quickly so I'll I really love to make like chili oil noodles and with like fried egg I can turn it around in minutes and it's like absolutely delicious so I'd probably say I eat that three four times a week potentially do you Mm-hmm. And so everyone has their own slight version of that dish. What talk us through yours? So depending on what I've got available, I tend to buy like random bits of uh, you know chili stuff and Asian inspired ingredients. So I've almost always got a selection of chilies and garlic and ginger, and then we get like a bit of sh- little bit of sugar in there, a bit of salt, and um, get some. Lots of garlic, to be fair. Like, I must think, to be fair. Not, There's know. just no such thing as too much garlic, I don't think. No, I don't think there is. Um, <laughs> and my wife would probably argue with the <laughs> I just stink of garlic. <laughs> no, it's because I've eaten a lot of garlic. <laughs> uh, definitely there's sesame in there as well, soy. And, yeah, get that all together. Um, oh, like a bit of paprika in there. I don't think that's really legit, but it makes it nice and red. Mm. So yeah, that's that's my blend. Um, nice bit of hot oil over those noodles. And what I'm not fussy about noodles. I just love noodles. So like whether the the thin ones, the yang bang or whatever. I just yeah, I'm I'm into it. It's a thing. So good. In 2020, just before the first lockdown happened, that was when you got the keys to your new restaurant, the Flintlock mm. at Cheddleton, which, talk about full circle, because that's actually the same restaurant or the same premises that you started out at at age 17. That timing must have been incredibly difficult. Talk about a roller coaster, like the excitement of opening your own place and then suddenly the world locking down. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. It wasn't ideal, <laughs> but what I suppose at that point, I didn't know what was going to happen. So I was just like, well, we don't know how long this is going to potentially last for in terms of like the impact on the working world, etc. So we'll set sail with it and, and see where we get to. Then a couple of weeks later, it was like, right, don't go anywhere. I then spent, I guess it was three or four months before you were allowed to travel at home in North Yorkshire with with my daughter who was only six months old at that point. So, like, if there was a positive to be out, that was it. Um, and yeah. obviously my wife was there as well. So we, we got that time, which we'll, we would never have got other than the scenario we all found ourselves in. So from there, it was a case of, right, I can now travel again 
So I'm going to come and decorate the restaurant because it needs gutting and reshaping. And But unfortunately, I have nowhere to stay because my mum was isolating. So, And so was my dad. Um, so I've got no one I can... Because you can't stay with a friend. Mm-hmm. So I, I've got nowhere to stay. What am I going to do? Okay, I'll just go sleep on the floor. <laughs> so I came and slept three or four nights a week, every week, um, to to get this underway. Um, and actually a few yards away from where I'm sat now. Um, so, you know, we'll get the occasional flashback. Mm. Um, and sleeping in a restaurant building is not like sleeping in a house. It makes a lot of noise and stuff. So, um, But that was all part of the process. And then th- there was a, a literal blood, sweat and tears that went into it all. Um, and I had months to do it. So I just, just cracked on and... Suffered without shower for a few days every week because I knew what what the the goal was. Like yeah. there was there was an inner desire to get it done, and no one was going to stop me. And I didn't care if I'd slept on the floor for months. That this was going to happen. So that that's what we did. Yeah, that's amazing. And when you were eventually allowed to open I think you had a seven week period before another lockdown hit you say during that seven weeks um you made a lot of mistakes which obviously of course because every new place makes mistakes but what were some of those mistakes and is there anything if you were to do it again you would do differently I'd I'd do it all differently (laughs) if I did it again would you I think yeah because I was cooking for people I wanted. I wasn't making what I wanted to make. Oh, it's okay. it's as simple as that. We were trying to do things to suit everyone's taste, and until I had a conversation with Paul Foster recently, when I was thinking about switching to Tasty Menu, I didn't really understand what I was doing until that conversation. And he said to me, "You you have to realise that you've not opened a restaurant because people need a place to eat." Mm. you've opened it because you want to do what you want to do mm. so if you're not doing that then you're doing something wrong so and we there's loads of places to eat around here there's there's a town two two three miles in either direction with loads of food so he's absolutely spot on there's two pubs within two minute walk so we weren't and we were trying to really be everything to everyone and it was just a bit of a shambles by my own admission and and I harbour all that responsibility because it's ultimately up to me what we serve. So we learnt a lot. I was tearing my hair out reading every review and some of which weren't that pleasant and quite right. Um, and it just, it was very, very important, that little period. And again, we felt some benefit of having to shut. It was obviously a massive financial burden, but... The idea that we got to stop and reset was was critical. And I don't know whether we'd be where we are now if that hadn't have happened. It's so weird to think about that time and actually think that there were positives to it. It's like you got a test run almost and then you got time to digest what had happened and then tweak it. And as you say, that, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I was. it was a real steep learning curve because I'd never done this before, of course. This was mm. like my first solo venture. I was, everyone was looking at me for the answers and I, to the point where I was so not with what I should have been doing. My focus was so 
all over the place. I was even printing menus before the start of service. Like, why am I doing that? Like, it just, it. You'd look at it now and just think, what were you thinking? Why weren't you making the food better? But that's just <laughs> you know, you, you learn all this stuff. But Tom, within ten months, you'd got two rosettes, hadn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Which so. was again one of those sort of landmark points of I I can do this. Um, it felt like a huge, huge relief. I, when I found out, I don't really use Twitter, but I found out via the medium of Twitter, I was actually at Chester Zoo with with Isabel, my daughter, and she was just <laughs> in the push chair. I went to an ice cream. Oh, yeah, yeah, hang on. What's this? Oh, I've got two rosettes. <gasps> and then it just dawned on, I just, just started crying. <laughs> just, Did you? Like, just floods of tears. And, and she's like, what are you crying for? Can I have an ice cream? Like, yes, <laughs> yes, you can have ice cream. Have all the ice creams you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go and empty the freezer. Um, oh. But, yeah, so I was just like, oh, this, we, this is happening now. It's, we, we're underway type thing. Mm. And that, like, it, it was a huge, huge success for, for this business and, and what it, is and what it was and where we've come from and the lack of experience particularly that I've got and, and all the team have got but to, to get that was was huge but then within a few hours I was like okay good start what do we do now <laughs> and and that's how it's been ever since we 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 can't stop unless we get to where we want to be it's a journey we're going to talk about the sixth desert island dish what's your go-to dinner party dish so I really like doing the simple things well when I'm out of the restaurant. So all week long, I'm making super refined, tasty menu dishes. So when it comes to hosting people outside of that environment, it needs to be big, bold and and comforting, whether that's sort of like a roast potentially um, or something along that track. I really love barbecue like i'm a massive fire nut so um anything on a barbecue would be great you know that big pulled pork or a brisket or something like that that's my dinner party vibe it's like Mm. you know don't expect tweezers and fine dining you don't go to the restaurant for that (laughs) you come come to the restaurant and you can pay (laughs) and you can eat that kind of food do you throw many dinner parties uh, no, not really, because I'm always here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Do you find people are a bit intimidated to ask you round to theirs? Oh, yeah, massively, which should be the, the the opposite way around. I think you'll find that most chefs, cooks or whatever will always be really, really grateful. Yeah. The only time they'll be critical is if they're paying for it because then yeah. they earn the right to say what they think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you invite me around to your house, I'm going to be the most grateful guest you get because I'm not cooking. Yeah. Do you normally serve a pudding? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, uh, that's another t- giant bourbon biscuit. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, l- I love doing a pudding, like a proper one. Mum's really, really good on the puds. So, so like, it's, it's usually a tussle with who's going to who's gonna do what. I mean, it must be a dream for a guest, you know. Yeah. You've got the two of us fighting over who's making your pudding and you might end up with two. I mean, yeah, so, that does sound like the dream. So what <laughs> kind of things are you making? So, like, she makes, she's like on a lemon meringue or a pavlova, that's it, vibe. She's good on anything like that. I'm I'm more down the track of 
like I love making ice creams because like I'm just into that. So you you're likely to get an ice cream from me at some point. Um, but I like yeah sticky toffee pudding. Like can't really go wrong with that, can you? And like a bit of Pedro Jimenez in the old caramel. It's just yeah. That is about as staple as it gets for me for a dinner party. <laughs> Sticky toffee pudding with just that little bit of Pedro in the butterscotch or caramel with, mm. with the vanilla ice cream. Or what about a sticky toffee pudding with the Pedro in the ice cream with some raisins? Oh, what? Oh, yeah, we could, yeah, we could soak the raisins yeah, in the Pedro. Yeah. Honestly, like, Tom. Okay, right. Okay, okay that, that needs to happen. That's going on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. What is your most treasured cookbook? Funnily enough, it's um, it's propping up my laptop so I can actually see it. Um, I have many, like most people who do what I do, but the complete rebution is mm. like my, my Bible of like, if I need to know how to do something classical or get to the, the fundamental roots of a, of a source, for example then that's where I'm going. Or there's the, the LaRousse one, but they're like it's quite heavy going as a read, whereas this one's more of a normal book. What? How many cookbooks do you think you have? I've got 10 in front of me. I've probably got, I don't know, upwards of 50 probably. Um, I'm lucky because I, I know loads of people who are releasing books, so they just send them to me, which is very nice of them. Yeah. I really like Tommy Banks's book just because it's it's just my kind of thing. Um mm. Yeah, Nathan Atlas books are great as well. Tom, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Like, I really love a like duck liver pate parfait. Like, I'm really into that, like with some brioche and a, mm. and a chutney of some sort. So, if I'm multi coursing, that's going to be my that's going to be my starter. Um, and then. It'd have to be like a massive steak. <laughs> like I'd really love a steak and and triple cooked chips, like done properly. Yeah. Um, with with maybe Bernays. Like Bernays for me is like the 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 dawn of all steak sauces. Um, like why is it so delicious? And why do they give you an option? Like would you like peppercorn or Bernays? Obviously, I'd like Bernays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like Bernays because <laughs> I'm an adult. And yeah. It's just, it, yeah, and uh, as long as it's not like you know straight out of the fridge I can't do with that someone gave me a, I don't know where it was but a steak with Bernays and it was like like fridge cold oh, this oh, is this is not this is not what I was looking for today <laughs> <laughs> of all days one today <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah so lovely big piece of steak with maybe, maybe chuck an onion ring on there like you know it's delicious points in it at this stage rather than calories so like yeah well and then what am I going to have for a pudding? That's I mean, I suppose we've got to I've got to take banana man, right? That's got to be it. <laughs> yes, so, and and take Tom with me to then facilitate more banana man whilst I was there. <laughs> that sounds perfect, Tom. Those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. I know everyone always says that, but doing those things does something to the charts and then it tells other people that this is a good show that they should listen to. So it really does make a difference. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter Dinner Tonight at 
www.dinnertonight.substack.com. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. Bye.